bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It's November 21st, and I'm Steve Bonta, filling in for my very able colleague, Paul Dragu, who's on a well-deserved vacation. We have some fascinating stories today. First up, Joe Wolverton interviews award-winning investigative journalist Liz Collin about her blockbuster new documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, which exposes the truth about the death of George Floyd and the 2020 riots. Hey, take it away, Joe. Thank you, Steve. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Liz Collin, the producer of what, in my opinion, is a blockbuster documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, dealing with the death of George Floyd, the riots that ravaged the Twin Cities, the subsequent trial of the officers involved in that case, and then the aftermath. Liz, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, let me lead off with what's, I guess, the, the newest news hook here is that the United States Supreme Court refused to hear Derek Chauvin's appeal of his con- his murder conviction in the case of George Floyd. Knowing what you know, with your extraordinary insight and information, what do you think about the Supreme Court's decision to refuse to hear Chauvin's appeal? You know, I think this wasn't much of a surprise, uh, Joe. It's it's sort of what his uh, appellate attorney expected in the end, sadly. I know that, that clearly he's uh, disappointed and his attorney has expressed his disappointment as well. Uh, but again, this is all based on the, the case we saw in the Hennepin County Courthouse that, that played out now a couple of years ago. And we go in depth uh, into that in, in the film, not so much what the jury was allowed to see, but but what they were not. And this appeal really centered on the fact uh, that, that Derek Chauvin, in, in uh, many opinions, did not receive a fair trial, basically paraded in and out of, of the, the courthouse each and every day were these jurors. Um, who you know see see barbed wire um, and and different different threats being basically basically made if they didn't come to the the correct uh, verdict here. So there are still some legal maneuvers that that I know the team plan, plans to make uh, moving forward. So we'll stay tuned tuned for that. But this really was um, sort of an uphill battle to get the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at this. Absolutely agree with you. I I think that. You, you mentioned in the documentary, I mean, it is amazing. And I know that I spoke to you and told you you deserve an Emmy. And you rightly you rightly commented that they don't give Emmys to truth tellers. But I'm going to tell you, I, you know, followed the George Floyd case like anyone else, maybe a little differently because I was an attorney, but with the, the sort of same general population interest and your documentary, Liz, blew me away. I was prepared to sort of, you know, pass through it knowing what happened. But wow, um, one of the the things that shocked me the most as an attorney and as an American is the fact that it seemed to me and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that the judge in the showing case, he refused to allow the jury to see what could have been exculpatory evidence, the the police body cam angle when Chauvin was using the uh, the maximal restraint technique, MRT, that the judge refused to let the jury see that evidence. Is that so? Yeah, there were many rulings made before this this case was was underway, including that that MRT, this maximal restraint technique that had been a part of Minneapolis police training, frankly, for decades, 
uh, the jurors were not allowed to see that training slide and also uh, a breakdown of, of what was was in the manual. And also this body camera footage, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe. This is nearly an 18-minute interaction that takes place with George Floyd that day. And most of it is long before Derek Chauvin even arrives on scene uh, for that call. But in the end, I talk about this 18-minute interaction. It's about 90 seconds that jurors are allowed to see. And that and that body camera footage was, was hidden for the public in it. You can hear the officers talking about the MRT, that that's what they're going to do. Um, and you also hear George Floyd talking about how he can't breathe long before um, Officer Chauvin then arrives on scene. They're asking him again and again, what do you want? What did you take? Um, you know, again, George Floyd is not complying at all uh, with their commands. In fact, he is the one that asks to be laid on the ground um, and will not get in, get in a squad car. And you also uh, hear officers call for an ambulance within 36 seconds uh, of him uh, being placed on the ground. And that's all left out. Um, it, it, the public narrative basically took control the day after because of these so-called leaders uh, as I call them in Minnesota, uh, pushed a very different narrative to, to what the facts and, and reality, in fact, were. Liz, exactly. And Liz, I was shocked as as a human being, as an American, that the if I'm correct, it was the police chief who perjured himself on the stand and said that the MRT was never taught to Minneapolis police officers. Did I get that right, that he just stood there sat there on the stand in trial and said, we don't t train them in this, when in reality, the training manual proves otherwise. Is that correct? You not only had the police chief at the time, uh, Madera Arredondo, but you also had the head of training um, on, on the stand saying saying that too. And I think they would say, you know, this is nuanced. This isn't how we train as far as you know, maybe it looked like that the knee was on the neck or, or whatnot, but um, they certainly should uh, and could ha have spoke up and, and, and told the truth um, about this thing. I think the power was really with them. But again, this this trial takes place 10 months after the damage was was already done. Uh, you, you have them peddling these lies day one that they, they have no idea what the officers are doing in that video. Uh, they've never had anything to do with George Floyd, another big uh, lie that was told by the police chief. They'd never heard of him before. When, in fact, uh, we, we focus on that in the documentary as well. There's an arrest that happens in, in 2019 that is almost a carbon copy of what transpired in, in, in 2020. George Floyd was the, the subject of an undercover drug investigation that took place in Minneapolis. And we uh, speak to the arresting officer uh, from that situation that happened back in 2019. And that, Liz, was an extraordinary part of your documentary where you speak to the officer involved in the 2019 because uh, George Floyd references that arrest at the very beginning of his interaction in 2020. Correct. He says, don't don't shoot me. They shot me last time. That sort of thing. When and you and this is the thing, Liz, people, you have got to run out and watch this. I don't care if you're anti-police. I don't care if you think the riots were justified. Any person uh, well-intentioned with a sincere heart and a desire for the truth must watch your documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis. Really quickly, Liz, explain to the people what it is that you intended to do with your documentary and why they should watch it. 
Yeah, so I um, went ahead and I, I left mainstream media over, over all of this. Uh, I certainly have a personal connection. My husband uh, was a longtime Minneapolis uh, police officer. He was the union president during, during all of this. Uh, so I really did have a front row, row seat. But I just saw again and again these newsrooms lie about information uh, that they saw on a, on a daily basis that I think really could have corrected the record here. They could have you know, held these uh, people uh, accountable in, in these positions. I, of course, was not allowed to, to report um, on the incident at all. So I, I put out a book called They're Lying, The Media, The Left, and The, and the Death of George Floyd. And that was in, in October. And, and the book was, you know, was received with an incredible re response. But this was uh, just sort of a way that, you know, I knew we needed to kind of go a step further. Not a lot of people read nowadays or have time to, to do so. Um, so I just said, you know, let's, let's go ahead and put together a documentary, make it free for everyone so they have no excuse. Um, you know, not not to watch it. And uh, it's uh, it, we almost are, are nearing a million views already after just putting it out five, five days ago. So it kind of restores my faith in humanity that people still do care about the truth. Uh, but more than anything, you know, I think people should really be sick of being lied to. We've seen this on on so many uh, different stories, uh, you name it, especially the, these last few years. Uh, I think that what becomes very clear once you watch the film is that this simply did not have to happen uh, th this way. And we're all uh, still paying, paying the price to this day. So many off ramps to all of this violence that happened, Liz, and you highlight that in such a professional way. Uh, I, the, this unholy alliance of media and politicians, that that's what's to blame for the riots that ravaged Minneapolis. Thank you so much, Liz, for your work, for your investigative journalism and for your commitment to the cause of the truth. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Joe and Liz. Next up, the markets are going up, not down, in the wake of Javier Millet's election in Argentina, despite dire warnings to the contrary. Freedom is the cure. You're dead on. This is the largest experiment performed on human beings in the history of the world. The more you know. What they're doing is they're forcing vaccination on people. And I believe they are killing people with this vaccination. The freer you are. It's murder. They are basically murdering people in hospitals. The all-cause mortality we know is now higher in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. Stay informed on the issues that affect freedom. Get a subscription to The New American today. TheNewAmerican.com Welcome back. Prior to the election of libertarian Javier Millet as Argentina's president last Sunday, the press was full of dire warnings about the dangers that this so-called radical right-winger posed to the Argentine economy. The flamboyant Millet, a self-styled anarcho-capitalist in the tradition of Austrian economists like Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, had taken to carrying around a chainsaw to show what he intended to do with unnecessary government programs if elected. This kind of thing always terrifies the entrenched elites whose privileges and pelf depend on a continuation of the predatory status quo. If Millet is elected, they warned, markets will tumble 
and already devastating inflation will spiral into the stratosphere. But in the end, the scaremongering did not work. Millet was elected by an astounding 12% margin nationwide, including up to 70% of the vote in major provinces like Córdoba and Mendoza. Not only that, the international markets, far from panicking over Millet's ascent, responded enthusiastically. Yesterday, with Argentine markets closed for a national holiday, Argentine securities traded abroad soared. U.S. traders bid shares of Argentine oil company YPFSA up as much as 43%. Banco Macro, that's a bank, banking company, SA, up 25%. And Grupo Financiero Galicia SA, that's another financial uh, company, up 21%. The exchange-traded fund, or e ETF of Argentine Securities, Global XMSCI Argentina, jumped as much as 13%, its largest single-day rise ever. It would appear that all of Millet's wild-haired antics promoting his quote-unquote extremist ideas in support of radical concepts like individual liberty and free market capitalism so horrifying to uncomprehending leftist elites in the media is music to the ears of investors. You know, the people who actually operate in the free market and actually understand how economics works. Okay. Well, I have here with me again Gary Benoit, the editor-in-chief of the New American Magazine, also my boss mm. and longtime friend. So, Gary, I mean, now that the euphoria on our side has perhaps subsided a little bit over Millet's election, we should probably talk a little bit about the realistic prospects for, for Argentina going forward. Is this event going to be in, a flash in the pan, or does it presage real uh, substantive change in, in one of the major countries in the Americas, if not the entire world. I mean, Argentina just, I think we mentioned this yesterday, but just in case our listeners weren't with us yesterday, was at one time one of the leading economies in the world. Millet routinely claims that it was the number one economy. I think he might be a little off, but it was certainly in the top five by the turn of the 20th century, 120 years ago, approximately. It was next to the United States, probably the number one magnet for talented Europeans who wanted to get away from the stifling and stultifying economic conditions in Europe and go to a country where they could be uh, could, could really develop. It was it, the, the Argentines in the late 19th century. Argentina was a major champion of laissez-faire free market economics and experienced an incredible multi-generational economic boom as a result. So Millet is hoping to bring all of this back, and when he Upon his election, among many other wonderful nuggets in his speech that he delivered a couple of times before rapturous crowds in Buenos Aires, he said, among other things, the long era of Argentine decadence ends today. Okay, and it's saying that, in effect, you know, that his, that his uh, you know, chainsaw tactics, he's going to take a chainsaw to the government, he's going to do all of these things that that's people on the so-called extreme right, who espouse what used to be called free market capitalism and laissez-faire economics, once mainstream ideas, alas, no longer so, uh, is, you know, fully intending to do this, and that he believes that a second Argentine economic miracle will follow. But let's get realistic. Despite his... Uh, amazing margin of victory in polls nationwide. He only lost in two very backwards remote provinces mm -hmm. of Argentina. He does not have majoritarian support in the Congress, although the mainstream conservative parties, the Argentine equivalents to rhinos and people like this, have, have supposedly taken his side. So he, he may have, in a sense. Um, there is going to be a lot of pushback from all the Argentine entrenched elites 
all of the people who are state employees who manage all of these obscure and expensive ministries and bureaucracies that Millet is is vowing to target and remove. Is he going to have an experience similar to Donald Trump? Basically, the, 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 the deep state is going to ultimately spit him out and destroy him? Or do you think this could lead to real change? Well, first of all, Steve, uh, it's really exciting what happened. The, the fact that somebody like Millet, who is a genuine libertarian, is able to get elected to the presidency. But but you said, Steve, let's be realistic. And so being realistic, is it possible for one man to be able to change the country around? And uh, I, I don't believe that that is the case. He obviously needs help. Uh, he is now, or will be, when he assumes the office of the presidency, the head of state. But he's not the legislature. And so uh, he's going to need the, the support of the legislature uh, the uh, the support of uh, uh, other organs and, and uh, uh, Argentina. And uh, so obviously what needs to be done uh, is the revolution that has been started, or maybe I should say the restoration has been started, uh, needs to be continued by others, uh, particularly including good legislators who need to be uh, elected in the future. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the election of Malay, like the election of Trump, does point up the timeless appeal, the, the temptation indeed of, of, of relying on the top-down fix as a cure-all. But it doesn't seem to work as we found out with Trump. You know, he, he enjoyed lukewarm support from a lukewarm Republican majority right. in Congress for the first two years of his presidency. And after the, that was done, he was basically finished. Right. Because, and I think it's really yeah. good to make that comparison between, uh, between Argentina and the United States of America. Uh, if we look at the U.S. government in particular, the the presidency um, or, or the president, his powers are actually very weak compared to the powers of, of Congress. And the reason we've had strong presidents is because Congress is overlooking its responsibilities. So uh, uh, looking at the United States, uh, if Trump were to get back into office and if Trump were to uh, continue his fight against the uh, the deep state, uh, how can Trump succeed uh, unless Congress passes the needed legislation? And of course, a lot of that needed legislation is to roll back the size of, of government. So I would apply that same principle to Argentina. Uh, again, Malay cannot do it uh, by himself. So uh, it's a good first step, but uh, he needs help. And, and uh, he needs help by good people being le- elected to the legislature in Argentina. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a question is, of course, the, the, the other argument is that when you have a really charismatic figure mm-hmm. like Millet or Trump get elected, the coattail effect yes. can be a factor. Now, it wasn't yeah, a factor, absolutely. unfortunately, so much during Trump's presidency. Had it been, you know, the, the, the House, the, the Republicans would have kept the House majority and Trump would not have been impeached. But, of course, that didn't happen. However, now we see more and more and more now that Trump is, has been made a martyr, quite frankly. Yes, uh, which it, is actually helping him, I think. It is. Well, that, mm-hmm. But that coattail effect is correspondingly right. greater. We're seeing more and more MAGA people exerting more and more influence at the grassroots levels. And you know, more and more people in you know, the latest the last year's congressional elections, I think, brought in a really good crop of people. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that play out now in Congress. Argentina's government is structured quite similarly to our own. Mm-hmm. Its original constitution, the constitution inspired by the writings of a man named Alberti, 
was very directly inspired by our own, this idea that, well, we don't want a democracy like the French have. We want a popular but a Republican form of government with some sorts of institutional restraints. And within that, those restraints, right. the Argentine president, traditionally, of course, similarly, was had less power than the legislature. Yeah. Hey, folks, The New American just released our latest collector's edition, Bookazine. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. This polished collector's edition includes articles on a number of topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, financial self-reliance, the importance of community, and many others. The authors are experts on their topics. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order copies at thenewamerican.com shop or by calling our office at 800-727-8783. Up next, in a shocking development, OpenAI fired CEO Sam Altman, who was then picked up by Microsoft. What's going on? Self-reliance was a cornerstone used by our founders to build this great nation. It's important for us to stay independent of the woke structures in today's world. Get a copy of our latest collector's edition, Self-Reliance. Learn about the necessity of self-reliance for a free people and basic tips on how to get there. Never give up hope. Welcome back. In a shocking, surprising, and stunning turn of events, last week OpenAI, creator of the celebrated ChatGPT AI system, Fired CEO Sam Altman. The move sent the company into a tailspin, with dozens of the company's employees walking off the job in response. As the New American's David DeRitter noted in a report on the matter, an additional 505 of 700 OpenAI employees signed a letter requesting that all current board members resign or they would accept positions with Microsoft. Why Microsoft? Satya Nadella, the current CEO of the software giant formerly run by Bill Gates, has invested heavily in OpenAI over recent months and maneuvered to land the ousted Altman to, quote, lead a new advanced AI research team, unquote, at the software giant in the wake of his firing by OpenAI. Well, what happened to lead to the spectacular turn of events? Speculation has run rampant. Officially, OpenAI claimed that Altman had not been, quote, consistently candid in his communications with the board, unquote. What does that mean? No one knows, and even board member and OpenAI co-founder Ilya Sutskever now says he regrets firing Altman, tweeting, quote, I deeply regret my participation in the board's actions, unquote. Okay, so tinfoil hat time. What could have led to this? Here's Jeff Bennett of PBS NewsHour discussing this theory with New York Times tech reporter Mike Isaac. So, Mike, as best I can piece together from your great reporting and a couple of conversations I had uh, with tech industry watchers, the OpenAI board, which is influenced by the interests of scientists, was worried that the company's expansion was out of control, might even call it dangerous. And Sam Altman was arguing that he was trying to grow the business out of a necessity. Do I have that right? Fill in the blanks. What ultimately led to his ouster? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. There's a uh, part of the fascinating dynamics of this company is that it's a very small board with uh, very ideologi ideologically driven directors on that board. And one of the big concerns from them is that 
AI is going to spin out of control and ultimately be a destroying force for humanity. And it's it sounds like Terminator, but it is actually something that these people think about and talk about a lot of the time. Sam Altman's point of view has essentially been, we need to speed up our tech development of our, our artificial intelligence as a way to better humanity, to offer people different services in developing countries that they may not have had if we didn't have the robots to sort of give it to them. And so it's been kind of a battle of safety versus uh, accelerationism of the tech. And uh, at least on Friday, um, the SAM side that is pushing for more aggressive development lost. Well, another theory floated on X that is potentially more intriguing notes that Altman's firing came just days after Communist Chinese Party head and dictator Xi Jinping made his imperial appearance in San Francisco, which happens to be home to OpenAI's headquarters. As background to this story, it is necessary to know that China has made deep investments into its domestic pursuit of AI and that OpenAI would necessarily be viewed as a chief opponent by Communist China. It is also necessary to know that OpenAI board member Helen Toner is both a globalist who has written for Foreign Affairs, the journal of the World Government Promoting Council on Foreign Relations, and has ties to Communist China's AI work. According to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, established by Congress in October 2000, Toner, quote, lived in Beijing for nine months studying the Chinese AI ecosystem as a research affiliate of Oxford University's Center for the Governance of AI, unquote. The commission noted that her work has also been published by China's People's Daily. For those not familiar, the People's Daily is the official newspaper of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, with that backstory, Thomas Shapin IV, who says he is an AI engineer, posted the details of this theory to his ex-feed. Quote, I'm pointing out obvious public facts and trying to find the potential conflicts of interest that are present on the OpenAI nonprofit board. One, Helen has a public connection or at least a publicly stated interest with China. Two, OpenAI's demise or at least deceleration would give China more time to catch up with the USA in terms of the race for AGI. Three, Xi Jinping came to San Francisco on November 14th to meet with leaders, executives of the tech industry. Four, the board fires Sam Altman two days later on November 16th. Five, a number of key OpenAI employees are hired by a for-profit company, Microsoft. Six, the public reasons that the board is giving us for why they fired Sam are nonsensical, but they still insist on effectively killing OpenAI, despite hundreds of employees demanding that they resign. Seven, who wins? Follow the money, China, and Microsoft, unquote. Well, so far, it is impossible to know which of these theories or which parts of them, if any, are accurate. What can be known for certain is that the saga has been great for social media viewership. So said AI and innovation expert Elon Musk, who quipped as only he can on X, quote, the ratings on the OpenAI telenovela are off the hook, unquote. Well, Gary, this is a story that in some respects probably is beyond either of our company. Neither one yes. of us is an expert on AI, although we both well, monkeyed one, around with chat One GPT. reason for that, Steve, maybe yeah. two reasons. I did not bring my tinfoil hat with me today, and I don't think you did either. I did not. And, no. and I mean, I, mean, I got to say, I mean, professedly, I'm not an expert on AI, although I have used ChatGPT right. in some of this. But um, I can't help but notice that this is not the first time 
that a high level, highly, um, shall we say, eccentric uh, entrepreneur in tech has been unceremoniously dumped by his own board. This happened, of course, to Steve Jobs many years ago yes. with Apple Corporation after the- you And know, he came back, didn't he? He ultimately came back triumphantly <laughs> right. before his untimely demise of cancer. Mm-hmm. So he had, a, he had a very, a second act. And in some ways, you know, Sam Altman reminds me of Steve Jobs. He's obviously a very bright guy. I mean, I've mm-hmm. watched a number of interviews. Brilliant fellow, um, you know, once in a generation type of mind sort of person. And people of this sort, unfortunately, are often the targets- of envy and ultimately, in, in, in this case, of, of diminution by, by, frankly, less well-endowed souls. And so that could play, play a role in here. I mean, you know, Steve Altman's the kind of guy who likes Steve, or excuse me, Sam Altman is the kind of guy who likes Steve Jobs and many others, is going to incite or inst- create jealousy in, in, in the minds sure. of other people. So that could pay, play a role in it also. And I could think be. we land on his feet, too, and uh, apparently oh, he yeah. has. Well, and I mean, but, but, but all of that said, it is certainly clear that the sordid ties, be, longstanding ties between Microsoft and communist China can't be un- downplayed. Sure. And while it may be a coincidence, and while we all know that correlation does not necessarily signify causation, it is passing strange that literally days after Xi Jinping's much ballyhooed imperial visit to San Francisco, mm-hmm. this happens. Yes. And I think to say passing strange, Steve, is a very good way to put it. Uh, and also I'd like to interject that there are conspiracy facts mm-hmm. and there are conspiracy theories. And certainly the evidence is overwhelming that there is a conspiracy, that there are powerful elitists who are working to become masters of the universe. Uh, we can say that as a fact because... Uh, the evidence is beyond uh, reasonable doubt. And we can also say that these global elitists uh, historically have favored China, uh, making China the uh, the engine, so to speak, the, the factory uh, for the world. And we can also say that uh, AI, in terms of where it is going and uh, where it can lead to, uh, is very, very scary. Well, you know, and here's, here's another point that I, I, I would like to make. And again, I'm not a computer mm-hmm. expert, but I am an expert on languages. Yes. I have a PhD in linguistics. I've studied, researched, and published on the subject of language and consciousness for many years. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that what we call consciousness is not the same as artificial intelligence. And what is happening, you know, what, what Mike Isaacs, the New York Times reporter, is claiming, which I think is ludicrous in the face of it, that, well, he was cashiered because they were afraid that he was going to take AI in a dangerous direction. And this is yet another example of otherwise sober-minded people confusing Hollywood scenarios like Terminator and Skynet mm-hmm. and all of this with the sober realities of, of, of science. So just as explosions don't go bang in outer space— Okay, as anyone who's ever watched right. Star wins at that, yep. so too there is a fundamental difference between what machines, no matter how sophisticated they may be, can do and what the human mind, the organic human mind, is capable of doing. And therefore, between the workings of AI on the one hand and bona fide consciousness on the other. We don't understand all the nuances yet, but a lot of the scare is overhyped. Next up, John Birch Society Research Project Manager Christian Gomez joins us to talk about the very important subject of the Second Amendment and whether states have the authority to nullify federal encroachments on Second Amendment rights. Imprisonment, forced labor, permanent separation from my family, perhaps death. I knew what could happen to people who were caught trying to defect. 
but the watchtowers stood yards away. The possibility of a new life in a different world, one without tyranny, was within sight. The West. I thought of the rewards no longer crushed under the boot of communism. I would work and make money, no longer restrained by the chains of collectivism. I would say what I wanted, without fear of spies and informants nearby. I would be free. The frozen rain and Romanian mud seeped through my gloves and cloths. I fantasized about the fire burning in the wood stove of my parents' home. But I pushed those thoughts from my mind, closed my eyes, and waited for the cover of the darkness. Get Defector, a true story of tyranny, liberty, and purpose by Mark Hobavkovich with Paul Dragu, a thrilling page-turner that will remind you how precious yet vulnerable freedom is. Available at shopjbs.org or Amazon. For a limited time, get 20% off your entire order using promo code DEFECTOR20 when you purchase DEFECTOR at shopjbs.org. Welcome back, everyone. Well, with me is John Birch Society Research Project Manager Christian Gomez. Uh, he may be a young man, but he has long experience and deep knowledge and wisdom on many topics, including the topic of the Second Amendment. So, Christian, I'd like to lead off with a, I guess, a leading question. True or false, the Second Amendment gives us the right to keep and bear arms. That is completely false. What? Why? Because the uh, Constitution doesn't give any rights. The federal government, our rights don't come from the Constitution or from the federal government. They come from God. That is the purpose of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights specifically to protect the God-given rights we already have. So if anything, it limits what the government cannot or can do uh, to the people. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean there's one, one ar- ar- argument that you, come, you hear from time to time that I've seen brood about regarding the Second Amendment before we get into the particulars, which are, are, are going to be fascinating, that some of the legislation that's coming down the pike. And, and this is the idea that the Second Amendment uh, only applies to the federal government. It doesn't apply to the states because the First Amendment has this, this, this repeated expression, Congress shall make no law. Well, it's only, one, it's only once. But, and so they sort of apply this to the Second Amendment as well. Do you agree with that? Or does the Second Amendment also have limiting p- power over states and local governments? The answer to your question is found right in the beginning of the Second Amendment, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. How else can the states keep their freedom if they don't have a militia to do so? And of course, Article 1, Section 4, I'm sorry, Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution guarantees to every uh, state a Republican form of government. Great. Well, yeah, I think that answers the question. I agree fully. But let, 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 okay, so let's get into the some of the specifics. I know you have a story that uh, some some updates on a piece of very important legislation uh, that coming out of the state of Ohio. Could you tell tell us more about that? Yes, of course. So there's a, a bill in the Ohio legislature, as you mentioned, House Bill 51, HB 51, and it just recently passed the uh, House Government Oversight Committee, a vote of seven to four in favor of the bill, which means that now it will be proceeding onward to the uh, state um to this to, to, to the to the floor of the house and if it passes there then it goes has to go to the senate and eventually pass through the senate before it gets to the governor's desk but what's wonderful about this particular piece of legislation hb 51 is that it would nullify most federal gun control laws within the state of ohio and as you can imagine 
the left is up in arms about the possibility of this thing passing because it's passing without any amendments to it thus far. Usually when, when, when we see bills like this, and this may still happen, hopefully it won't, but when we see these nullification bills that would nullify federal gun control, we typically see them starting to get watered down as they get closer and closer sure. to reaching the governor's desk. So we would ask all those who are watching to go to jbs.org um, and click on the uh, our federal, sorry, to click on our action alerts for the state governments and click on Ohio and then uh, find the alert there titled Nullify Federal Gun Control in Ohio with HB 51. So if you haven't already, Contact your legislators through that alert to encourage them to pass this on both the floor of the House of Ohio and in the Ohio Senate eventually when it gets there, and to do so without any weakening amendments of water down the legislation. Interesting. Okay, well, I mean, let's talk about Ohio for a moment. Not too many years ago, Ohio was one of those purple swing states that often, though not always, voted for Democrats and and, and, and you know liberal socialist types of candidates. And today, I mean, one of the great successes of those of us on the right, I mean, Ohio is, 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 is pretty deep red. It's reliably red. It's also one of the most populous states. But now you're, you're the expert in state legislatures, Christian. What are the realistic prospects of this bill passing, A, and B, passing without being watered down? And if it's passed by both houses of Congress, of actually being signed into law by Ohio's governor? What do you think? If we don't, if we as, as Birchers and, and concerned citizens do not put the pressure on the legislature, there's a good chance they could torpedo it or even uh, water it down, basically undermining uh, the bill. But I think if we keep applying uh, the right pressure, as we've been doing already in Ohio, keep doing what we're doing and more of it, we'll get the bill passed. Because I, I think that the, uh, the political makeup of the legislature is ripe to pass something like this in, in that state. We just have to... Uh, Keep them, keep them on their toes, so to speak, so they do the job right. So we're talking a Republican governor, right, and Republican majorities in both houses. But are these Jim Jordan and Matt Gates type Republicans, or are there lots and lots of rhinos who would just ra- just as soon wince and and water everything down and be good guys and go along to get along and all the other things that that are symptomatic of the rhino movement? I mean, what 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 do you think of that? Well, there certainly is both of that. There is There are rhinos, and there, of course, are uh, more conservative, uh, what we would call Americanist or constitutionalist-leading uh, legislators as well. Uh, but that's why the pressure is so key, because hopefully we can get the rhinos to act right. Because e- even when these rhinos run for office, they all have the same platitudes. Cut taxes, get even, government out of the even way. Even rhinos pass, some, uh, sometimes do the right thing exactly. after all other options so have been if, exhausted. So if we keep the pressure on them, we hope and we wish them to do the right thing. Besides, there's also a legislative scorecard that we produce. So if they do the wrong thing, that'll get recorded because we've recorded all, all the key votes in the Ohio legislature. So if you are a Republican out there, who, who would consider themselves sort of a moderate or Rockefeller-type Republican, I would behoove you to vote the right way on this issue so your score could increase in our um, New American uh, TNA legislative uh, 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 scorecards that we have for the states. Well, so, so do you happen to know who is sponsoring this bill? Yes. So the, uh, the bill was sponsored by Representative Mike Lochek of Bazetta and Gene Schmidt of Loveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, these are these are gladsome tidings indeed. Do you can you are, are there any other similar bills being yeah. advanced in any other states right now? Yes, yeah, so we have. Uh, so he, at the John Birch Society, we are monitoring various state um, legislatures. Actually, we're mo- we monitor all fifty state legislatures, right. but there are particular ones that we are monitoring with, with regards to bills that are very similar to this one. We have in the state of Kansas HB two four four two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the state of uh, West Virginia, there's HB 3378. And in the um, great state of Georgia, we have uh, SB 67 and HB 293. But, you know, even though, let's say you you live in so, a so, state. Excuse me. First of all, these are all still in committee. Mm-hmm. And well, sec- they're, they're, they're in different processes within the legislature. But they're not before. They're, they're, they haven't come for a vote yet in the full legislature. I have to go through each one to see specifically where each one is at in the different states. Are, are but they but all, they're all alive. Those ones I mentioned are still living and can still pass. Well, are, and are, are they all similar in, in substance to the Ohio yes, bill? Uh, so they're r- all roughly. I mean, there's there's some nuances that are different, but right. generally the same okay. uh, type of bill. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that, this is good to hear. So, so a, a number of states, all of them, I think it's fair to say, all of them red states at this point. Th- there's this movement afoot now to really hit back at this overweening federal government. There are what twenty thousand plus firearms lo- rules and regulations promulgated by the federal government, which means, in effect, more than twenty thousand flagrant violations of the Second Amendment. Okay, because the federal government has zero authority over this the, this kind of thing, and so and, and I mean we we don't really have time. We assume that our listeners have know something about the Second Amendment or have some th- sympathy with the idea that people have a God given right to defend themselves, which is what is enshrined in the Second Amendment. Um, but 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 nevertheless, I mean it's it's heartening to see that, and this is one of the things over the last. Hmm, you know, since I really became politically aware, you know, 35 years ago, roughly, this the, the Second Amendment and right to keep and bear arms related issues are one of the really most conspicuous areas where the partisans of liberty have made substantial strides. And in this case, you know, strides reclaiming liberties that were lost over most of the 20th century with these various, you know, gun confiscation bills, not just federal gun laws, but state gun laws as well. And, and, you know, I mean, we got to the point where, what, half of the states now, you can, you, you, constitutional carry, meaning carrying, carrying weapons concealed or not. We just got to work on the other half now. Yeah, I mean, Wisconsin is not yet one of them. Mm -hmm. But this is something that would have been just unheard of even 20 years ago. So very, very optimistic news. And there's no sign that this, that this push to re-enshrine the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms is losing steam. Well, Christian, thank you very much for your time. This has been very encouraging. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. And do remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. And if you haven't already, get a subscription to the print edition so you don't miss issues like the one we just talked about. Enjoy the rest of your day and join us tomorrow for another episode.